I'm Rabbi Ken Brodkin. Welcome back to the Jewish Growth Podcast as we are recording this episode. We're just a few days away from the start of Hanukkah. The Chag of Hanukkah underscores a major trend that's been developing in the Jewish world for a couple of decades. Namely, we're moving in two opposite directions. As a people, Jews are becoming more secular and more religious all at once. Many Jews are becoming more secular, as the Pew Research Center has noted. In 2020, the New York Times published an article called Goodbye Hanukkah by a disaffected person who was raised Jewish. This perspective spoke to a real trend that's happening in the Jewish world as a woman was saying goodbye not only to Hanukkah but to Judaism. And the critical thing I find about such disaffected people is how unaware they are of the rich spiritual tradition that Judaism does have to offer. Now, on the other hand, there's another simultaneous trend. Many people are connecting to that deeper ruach, that spirit of Judaism and Torah, seeing it not only as an affiliation, but as a lifelong path of personal growth and development and even transformation. This past Sunday, we woke up to the news of a terrorist attack in Jerusalem, and tragically, the young life of Eliyahu Kay was taken from this world. I learned that day that Eli Kay was the great nephew of two of our fellow congregants here in Portland. And as I learned about this young man, I realized how much he was a person who represents those who are moving towards Judaism as a spiritual center of their lives. As Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein of South Africa noted, Eli was a Jewish hero. Eli Kay left his home in South Africa and made Aliyah to Israel, where he served in the IDF as a paratrooper. But he also studied Torah and lived a life of mitzvot, encouraging others to do the same. This one individual embodied so much of what is good about our people. There really are two movements within the Jewish people, and Hanukkah highlights this struggle. Hanukkah was not only a conflict between Jews and Greeks, but between Jews and Jews, between Jews who identified with Torah and those who identified with Greek culture. And as I reflected on the loss of Eliyahu Kay, I've been moved by this idea that here is a person who gave his life for Israel. As we can see, even in our times, self-sacrifice is, sadly, more than a metaphor. This touches upon a deep theme of Hanukkah, the self-sacrifice of the Hashmonayim, who are ready to give their lives for the Jewish people. The Hanukkah story centers around people who are ready to make that ultimate sacrifice. And inspiring as that is, it seems out of our world, because for many of us, we feel passionate about Torah. But the idea of ultimate sacrifice is thankfully distant from our own lives. And so as we reconnect to the Hashmonaim during Hanukkah, what does their example of sacrifice mean in our real lives? In today's Jewish Growth Podcast, we're going to explore how these early heroes shed light on our path today. In a couple of days, we will read Parsha's Vayeshev, and herein lies a thread that touches on this issue. That thread is the theme of Mesiras Nefesh, self-sacrifice that begins with a woman by the name of Tamar. There is no question that Tamar did not have an easy road in life. Through no fault of her own, her first two husbands, Aaron and Onain, died. And then her father-in-law, Yehuda, decided to let her languish, withholding Shelah, her rightful husband, by the laws of Leverite marriage. Taking matters into her own hands, Tamar disguised herself as a harlot and conceived with Yehuda. She wisely accepted his signet, his cloak, and a staff as a security pledge for the delayed payment. When the news got out that Tamar was pregnant, Yehuda assumed that she had been in an illicit relationship for which she would be liable to capital punishment. 
Well, Tamar knew the truth that Yehuda was the father of the child, and instead of sharing the news publicly, Tamar simply sent back the pledged item stating, I am pregnant by the one who owns these objects. Yehuda remarkably takes ownership and makes sure that Tamar is spared. But what's really remarkable is how Tamar saves Yehuda's life. Why not use her knowledge in a more forceful way and call him out? Rashi quotes the Midrash, which teaches us that Tamar did not wish to publicly embarrass Yehuda, even if she risked her own demise while saving his face. The rabbis take a lesson from her. Noach lo la'adam shi'apil atzmo barabim. It is preferable for a person to throw himself into a fiery furnace and to not embarrass his fellow in public. Tamar went on to give birth to children who would become the beginning of the line of Jewish kings. Tamar's life was spared, but it didn't have to turn out that way. And here's another fascinating thing. In the very next passage, the Torah describes the incident of Yosef with the wife of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Yosef day after day. And the Torah teaches us that Yosef refused, saying, There is no one greater in this household than I, and he, your husband, has denied nothing to me but you, since you are his wife. How then can I perpetrate this great evil and sin unto God? Yosef knew that refusing the wife of Potiphar was dangerous. The person in the power of this relationship was the queen, not the Hebrew servant. And yet Yosef was willing to sacrifice his life, and sacrifice he did. He wound up in a dungeon for years, a place where many servants certainly died. So not only Tamar, but Yosef as well, is willing to make this great sacrifice. And it doesn't end there. Consider Yehuda himself. When Yehuda sought to return to Mitzrayim with Binyamin against Yaakov's wishes, Yehuda took full responsibility for his younger brother, pledging his life to Yaakov. He declares that he will bear ultimate responsibility for the boy so that he can attain provisions. Astonishingly, Yosef is pushed to the realization of this promise by Yosef, who is, of course, undercover. When Yosef threatens to take Binyamin as a servant, Yehuda offers his own life as a servant in place of Binyamin, surely an act of self-sacrifice. And so all of these people, Tamar, Yosef, Yehuda, share something in common. Each of them lands in an excruciating position where they demand a willingness to sacrifice their life for the belief in God and the responsibility to their fellow man. And when we think about it, these were the people who inspired the Maccabees. While many minor festivals were practiced in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, Hanukkah and Purim are two that remain with us until this day. There's an interesting contrast between these two Chagim. Purim is a time that we engage in mitzvot that pertain to the body, such as a festive meal, and Mishloach Manot. On Hanukkah, though, we're focused on Halal Vahodah, praising and acknowledging the Creator. Hanukkah is structured around lighting the menorah and singing Halal as opposed to a festive meal. Why is that? The Bach, a 17th century Torah sage, discusses the difference between these two festivals, pointing out that in the days of Mordechai and Esther, a decree was promulgated against the body of the Jewish people. In response, Israel fasted and prayed, and when we were spared, our sages guided us to celebrate with our body in a literal sense. By contrast, on Hanukkah, the Greek laws were targeted against the avoda, the mitzvot of worshiping Hashem. 
In addition to outlawing circumcision and Shabbos, the Greeks made pointed decrees against service in the temple, annulling the lighting of the menorah. The Bach notes that in the generation of Hanukkah, the Jewish people were initially plagued by a lack of dedication to the temple service. And because of that internal national vulnerability, the Greeks played on our weak spot. Witnessing this, the Hashmonaim were aroused to reinstate the Avoda. They became passionate about the very issue for which there was an underlying national neglect. They arose to the point of self-sacrifice for the sake of the Avoda, the service, as they took on the Syrian Greeks. This was a battle undertaken by Kohanim for the sake of reinstating the temple service, the Avoda. The miracle of the oil, too, centered around reestablishing the temple service. And when we stand back from this, we see that the Maccabees were putting their lives in the line. They were willing to make this ultimate sacrifice for the service of Hashem, even when their physical lives themselves were not threatened. It was fitting then that the rabbis established Hanukkah around serving and connecting to Hashem in the more spiritual sense. Sure, everyone enjoys a good donut or latka on Hanukkah at a Hanukkah party, but the Chag is not based on the physical celebration per se. Hanukkah is about mitzvot, the act of connecting to Hashem without a physical benefit. And so in the dark days of Kislev and Tevet, Hanukkah speaks to this deeper aspiration of the Jewish people. Celebrating Hanukkah in a spiritual way can have such an impact in a young life. I was recently looking at, at a picture of myself with my now 18-year-old daughter lighting the menorah when she was a little girl. The picture is on our wall. And there we were standing together in the kitchen near the window on a dark night with the candles glowing. And as I looked into her eyes, gazing at the candles, it occurred to me what a deep impression a mitzvah has on a child. One of my favorite moments of the entire Jewish year is lighting the community menorah at Shul with the, with the kids from the synagogue. But what is it that we need to convey to these young lives about the Chag? In the secularized versions of Judaism, the menorah is a ritual to, just, to dust off, perhaps a symbol of the ability to triumph under great adversity. This idea is true enough, and yet the menorah speaks to much more than that. Lighting the menorah is an act of avoda, serving or connecting to a transcendental creator. Many young Jews are raised with the Hanukkah that is sadly lacking in this idea of deep spirituality. The message of Hanukkah is one of deep spirit. Our menorah is a reminder of the menorah that stood in the temple, suggestive of a deeper light in the world. The, Han- the Hashmonayim, who were motivated to struggle for that, believed deeply in Hashem, not only as an idea, but as a living light in their lives. And who are their heroes? Well, we find in the book of Maccabees that they were inspired by people like David, who came from the line of Yehuda and Tamar. The very people in Brachis who were prepared to sacrifice their lives were the ultimate inspiration for Jews so many generations later. The Hashemunayim were inspired people. What then does Hanukkah mean for us? The lives of the Hashemunayim point to the idea of sacrifice for the sake of avoda, pure acts of mitzvot, serving and connecting to God. When we see someone like Eli Kay, who united the Jewish people in his sacrifice, we remember that there are Maccabees in our generation. We pray that we do not need to make that sacrifice, and yet there is a sacrifice that we all make by living a life of deeper devotion. 
I was once at a conference where Gary Torgo, a well-known business leader and philanthropist, shared a story about visiting a shoal where he happened to be the 10th person in the Minion. The Minion was running behind as he needed to stay an extra half hour, even though he was late for an important meeting with a potential business partner. He described those minutes of being torn over what to do. Should he sacrifice the meeting for the Minion? It turned out that he stayed in the Minion, and he finished davening, and still saw his business efforts succeed that day. It's a classic moment that many of us face. It may be a matter of telling our employer or a potential client that we cannot come to work on the Jewish Chag, or maybe waking up early to put on tefillin or to daven. There's a sacrifice in mitzvot, and Hanukkah touches upon that sacrifice. Just this week, I met a Jewish family who fled recently from Venezuela, and they're sacrificing greatly to reestablish themselves physically and also to keep mitzvot under difficult circumstances. The Ramchal teaches us that true spiritual ascent happens when we realize that mitzvot are valuable and precious moments. What's a mitzvah that matters in your life and how can you make that a more established and precious part of your life? Try to find a step forward in your mitzvah observance. As you do so, you can get to a deeper part of the Jewish experience And that's an experience that teaches us that mitzvot are truly worth living for. Thank you for being with me. I'm Ken Brodkin, and this is the Jewish Growth Podcast.